You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Alan Dunn and I, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Alan, wonderful to be back with you this week. How are you doing? How is Dublin treating you? I'm good, Niels. Good to be back. Uh, all good here. Nice sunny winter's morning. But uh, yeah, looking forward to, to speaking today. I'm envious when you say sunny. I don't think I've seen the sun for weeks now. It has been the wettest autumn I can remember in the countries that I've been in for the last uh, couple of months. But anyways, maybe maybe Dublin is taking over as the sunny place in Europe, which would be it's unusual. Been, but... It's been pretty wet here as well, but no, the sun is shining this morning. <laughs> Good to hear. Anyways, um, an interesting lineup, I think, of topics, very um, kind of broad-based. Uh, we're going to tackle a few different things um, from macro to trend, CTA, and and so on and so forth. Um, before we do that, um, not necessarily from what sort of uh, what we're going to talk about today, but is there anything in particular that's been on your radar recently? It's been a while since you and I spoke. Yeah, obviously it's been uh, another uh, interesting week uh, in terms of uh, bond moves this week. And we, we had the CPI number on um, earlier this week, which, uh, you know, obviously shows the declining inflation trend. I, I was surprised at the magnitude of the reaction, I, you know, when I checked the number and I saw the, the kind of the movement. I had to check it a few times to see um, had I missed something. But but certainly, you know, no doubt that the, uh, the official numbers are showing that, that you know, more evidence of, of the declining inflation trend. I mean, possibly because, the, you know, the most recent speech from Powell was maybe a touch on the hawkish side. So maybe people had positioned that way a little bit. And I, and I don't know what the whisper number was for CPI, but, but certainly, you know, even particularly from the FX perspective, I think the euro was up two big figures, which is, you know, big move yields, obviously big moves, equities. So, um, you know, certainly I, I would say the number was consistent with the view of no move from the, from the Fed in, in December, but but certainly the size of the market moves were, were, were exaggerated. So I don't know if that was positioning coming into the uh, event or the, the release uh, or, or big stops or something like that, but but certainly that was it was a surprise but I mean, we have had some some other um, reasons for optimism, I, I guess, outside of that with the, the Biden G uh, meeting, you know, which uh, I guess is a step uh, to, you know, in, in, in the right direction. But, but you know, you might question, you know, how much substance uh, there is or how much things will really change. But, but certainly an interesting week. And uh, yeah, I was, as I say, that was kind of the most noteworthy aspect uh, from, from my perspective. Yeah, and I want to do something a little bit unusual because obviously... Um, generally, we're not that concerned about um, numbers and fundamental information. But I have to say, uh, when that number came out, uh, I saw, I looked at my kind of Twitter feed, and there were suddenly a lot of people talking about, "Well, this number looks dodgy." So let me just let me just dive into some of the things um, that I came across that I just found was interesting. Well, first of all, I would say timing, timing of this number in itself was also a little bit interesting because as as you uh, probably know the week before we pretty much had a failed 30 year auction so that had also put a lot of pressure and i think you're right in terms of positioning played a role i think people got scared uh, the week before with the uh, with the uh, how the auction um went but then when i start sort of paying attention to what people are writing about these numbers one guy uh, was, uh, t- uh, well, not just one, but lots of people were focusing on this, the fact that the, uh, and I'm just quoting from one of these tweets, according to the magic government CPI math, your health insurance went down 34% in the last year. Oh, and by the way, uh, they give it only a 0.525% weight in the CPI basket. Um, but what I can say is that here in Switzerland, it did not go down about, uh, 34%. Um, and in fact, it probably didn't go down at all. It probably rose, I would say. So that's kind of interesting. Also, there were people um, uh, picking out the you know the weights of how they do the CPI number, saying, well, actually, they weight fresh vegetables higher than 
than uh, that health insurance, meaning we should be spending more money. We, officially, we're spending more money on fresh vegetables than we are on health insurance. Not so sure. Also, we spend, apparently, according to the CPI basket, uh, almost twice the amount on alcohol than we do on uh, health insurance. Um, so interesting stuff, I think, just in terms of how it all um, was put together. And when you look at a chart, someone was posting a chart of the uh, U.S. inflation health insurance year over year. And it, this goes back like 10, 20, 15 years. And uh, you see it kind of bouncing plus minus, I would say, 10%, or, uh, you know, but then suddenly it goes from uh, up 30% a year ago or so, and now it's down 35%. So interesting to say the least. And I do think personally, I do think the timing of it a little bit suspicious, frankly, uh, after that. Um, you mentioned that uh, sentiment has changed. And uh, I saw one guy tweeting out that now futures show 0% chance of additional rate hikes uh, with cuts beginning in May of 2024. Prior to the CPI report, there was a 30% chance of at least one more uh, hike ahead of us. So that's an interesting um, little thing as well. And of course, last last week, uh, Fed chairman said that he was not confident um, that they had done uh, enough work. So... And then you had people like uh, the, the 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 Fed whisper guy Nick Timiraso, yeah, something like that, uh, coming out saying, you know, the big question will be how they're going to talk about um, their next policy move uh, at the upcoming meeting. I also noticed one uh, person that you uh, may follow as well, Lisa Abramovich, um, and she was uh, highlighting, uh, of course, the fact that there is a massive amount of debt coming um, that needs to be rolled. Uh, from the S&P 500 companies, we have more than $100 billion in debt coming due next year. And that, I think, used to be, uh, last time was when the rate were around 2.8%, but of course now refinancing is probably twice that. So that would be interesting. And then just talking about the market moves that you, uh, that you highlighted, I saw an article on Bloomberg uh, talking about how this was kind of almost like a black swan, but I guess if it go, the markets go up, it's like a white swan, um, because it was a very rare move when you think, when you look at the percentage move that we had on Wednesday, it says something like, in fact, in the nearly 8,000 instances of 10-day periods going back to 2002, only five other times has such a move uh, as big or greater than the post-Halloween coincidence surge in stocks and bonds. Uh, investors who dressed up as bears are very much regretting their costume choice. Yeah. So, um, well, uh, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. that's the thing that surprised me because if you look at the, uh, you know, I, I, for sure the, the headline CPI had posted a, I, was it flattered or down month on month, whatever it was, but obviously that's very energy related. But the core CPI, you know, it's moderating, but but still, you look if you look at the three six month annualized versions, they're still kind of three percent you know, on, on most or, or above on most of the time horizon. So it's certainly, it's consistent with the falling inflation, the disinflation uh, story, um, and it would give more comfort to the Fed. But yeah, to, to justify a uh, the kind of a too big figure move in the dollar and treasuries and, 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 and equities, yeah, I, I, I was surprised in that. The one other thing I would say in, in the kind of falling inflation camp was interesting. A number of the retailers were out this week talking about deflationary pressures, which was interesting. I think it was Walmart or possibly Macy's. A couple of them had results and they were talking about the the consumer uh, stepping back a bit and starting to see a bit more price pressure there. So, you know, I think there's a lot of cross currents. There's obviously the um, the shelter component, which people focus on as well, as saying that still hasn't fully caught up in terms of fully reflecting. And, and it won't. Obviously, it always does with a lag the, what, what's happening on the ground in terms of um, new rent. So, yeah, I do think, you know, hard to argue against uh, the falling inflation trend and, and what the numbers are showing, but at the same time, it seemed to be a, an extreme reaction. Um, but as I say, possibly but, but the, the, the fact that Powell had kind of tilted the market towards a slightly hawkish slant last week, which again, I was a, a little bit surprised on that one as well. But um, but yeah, uh, it would seem a fairly high chance of no move now in December, you'd have to say. Yeah, yeah. I want to stay with the global macro a little bit longer. I want to dive into something that both you and I uh, just sort of glimpsed over uh, that Ray Dalio uh, wrote. But before we do that, I just want to tie this week into kind of 
the trend world, the performance uh, of this? Because clearly November is turning out to be um, perhaps the most, well, March was pretty difficult as well, but, you know, a, a difficult month for trend followers, I think. And I think it's mostly really to do with what took place on, on Wednesday uh, for the most part, especially those with sort of longer term horizon, uh, maybe a little bit heavy in fixed income. Uh, obviously, Katie and I spoke recently about the whole big uh, short fixed income position and and where we are on on that. Um, this is, uh, of course, very relevant. But I would say from where what I can tell, uh, you know, energies obviously didn't do uh, great for for trend uh, followers and and currencies. You you touch on that as well. Now we we're about six weeks away from the year coming to an end, Alan, and uh, clearly our industry will have welcomed some new investors on the back of a really strong 2022. And I'm wondering from your perspective, obviously uh, you you uh, sit on the, or have sat on the other side of the table uh, to me uh, for so many years. And, you know, how, how should investors think about uh, their initial experience if they're relatively new to, to the space? Uh, they're coming up probably for some year-end investment committee meetings. How would uh, you help them frame this year's performance where we are, uh, also in relation to what happened last year? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a tough, I mean, okay, maybe tough is, is it too too harsh? I mean, the subchain trend in extend 3% on the year. Um, so it's a negative year. Um, I mean, you would have to, we, we have been highlighting that we're getting more interest income in, in trend and managed futures funds. So it's actually worse you know than that if you think about that you know if, if this was back in the era of zero rates we'd be in a, in a kind of a minus six year or something so it's definitely tough i, I was looking at the sock chain i have a have a report that they send out of all of the a vast majority of the cjs and and they have a date on about 200 cjs uh, in the cj and kind of quant macro space and uh, you know about a hundred of them are up. About a hundred of them are are down. So it's it's that kind of year. Uh, in aggregate, the industry based on the indices is down, but there are managers up. There are managers down. You know, for for, for strategies that manage features, uh, managers run with the kind of sharp that they are. You you should expect some flat years, some negative years. It's not you know nothing statistically significant about it. Um, it's 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 part of the normal ups and downs. I mean, it, it's just a reminder that it's it can be a tough strategy to hold when other things are doing well. You know, when we did the um, the, the 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 series talking to all the top CTAs, you know, this was something that came out that trend following managed futures can be tough to hold. And after a period of two or three years where it's doing very well, you say, well, what's that? What's difficult about holding CTAs? It just delivered like a, you know, the trend index just delivered twenty seven percent in a year when the equities market was down. So what's tough about that? And then you get March, and then you get what we've had in in November, and and it is a reminder, uh, particularly in a year when when equities are doing well, and your sixty forty is going to have done okay, driven more by the equity side, you know, and and a diversified liquid alls portfolio is probably around flat. So so people will immediately be saying, no, oh, do we really need this? So I think it's all about you know one keeping a long term perspective, two reminding yourself why is it in the portfolio, uh, and three, you know. Uh, you know, another investor made a good point that, you know, zero correlation, you know, doesn't necessarily mean negative correlation. It just means zero correlation, you know. So, uh, yeah, it's just a year where, where, where managed features and trend following hasn't done particularly well. But, you know, I don't think there's anything to read into that. No, I, exactly. And I, I certainly want to stress the fact that you say, yeah, the trend is, in, index is down about 3% for the year. But yeah, let's not forget it was up 27% last year and it was up 9% the year before, six and a quarter the year before and nine and nine percent the year before. So actually, uh, of course, in our completely biased point of view, um, you know, this is this is very normal. Before we head back to the global macro space, let me just say that my trend barometer that you can find on the uh, website uh, finished yesterday at 41, so completely neutral, where it's been staying in neutral uh, for most part of this year. And I think this is also reflected in the performance that we just discussed. 
performance-wise, beta 50 down to 2% for the month, uh, but still up 42 basis points for the year, um, which is a little bit unusual compared to the other indices. SockGen CT index uh, down three for the month, down three for the year. Trend we talked about down four and a quarter for the month, down three and a quarter for the year. Short-term traders index down 1.3% for the month, down 2.6% uh, for the uh, year. And then compared that to obviously incredibly strong equity performance this month, the MSCI world up 7.38% so far, up 14. Uh, so half the return so far this year coming in November. Uh, world government bond index uh, for a change, a really strong month, 2.29% up. And the S&P total return uh, uh, up 7.6%, up 19% for the year. All right, I just wanted to head back before we dive into some of the other topics. Uh, you and I came across uh, uh, Ray, one of Ray Dalio's uh, latest articles. Of course, he's been kind of very vocal in the last few years about kind of the change, the dramatic change he sees. And I think he's been saying, by the way, that, you know, five years from now, we are not going to be able to recognize the world we live in and so on and so forth. He had a little bit of uh, an article that came out uh, because obviously focusing on the relationship with China, it's very important. And now for the first time in six years, I think she came and met in person uh, President Biden at the APEX meeting. And and actually Ray Dalio came out with an article saying, well, maybe the, the actual hot war between the countries, the chance of that has come down, but there's another war that's going to be intensifying um, in his view over the next uh, few years. Can you talk a little bit about um, what what he has in mind and and you know any thoughts of your own? That sure, yeah. I'm. I, I, you sent it on to me. I had to read through it. Um, I mean, what he's saying is basically the U.S. and China kind of went maybe not to the brink in terms of an actual physical war, but things were heading in in that direction of heightened risk of an actual conflict uh, in relation to uh, Taiwan and and the, and, the, and the Chinese military. Uh, build up around Taiwan, but in the last couple of months, uh, things have warmed up. Or yeah, in, in terms of their relationship, as as opposed to cooling further. Um, obviously, Janet Yellen had been there. There had been a couple of officials there, and things have kind of culminated in this meeting between uh, Biden and Xi, uh, which seems to have been you know signaling a thawing of of relations and you know uh, lots of positive talk about the uh, from Xi about. The, the the globe being big enough for two big superpowers to to, to grow and and uh, um, you know uh, and, and no need for a conflict. So I, I think that all of that makes sense. And then Ray Dalio's point has just been yes, okay, physical conflict maybe not on the uh, horizon immediately, but that doesn't thing, mean things are all rosy between the US and China. And that obviously you still have these two uh, superpowers vying for you know global influence, global dominance, and that's going to continue. And that the war will be more in the background, technological, um, and that the strategy will be more like, as he says, hide your strengths, bide your time. It's an old Chinese proverb, and you know, it was kind of, uh, um, you know, Deng Xiaoping. That was his philosophy of build up your uh, your strength, but don't, don't necessarily promote it. So I think, all, you know, all of that makes sense. I mean, it, just because we've had a, a meeting between Xi and, and and Biden, all of those kind of structural. Uh, concerns about national security don't go away. Obviously, the U.S. is still trying to build its own. They're both still trying to build their own chips uh, capability, and you know, trying to uh, limit each other's access to. Well, certainly in the U.S.'s case, lim- limit their access to certain, uh, you know, key um, technologies in relation to chips. And then obviously, China has rare earths that the U.S. would like to have. So, so this ongoing uh, battle uh, is going to continue, but it's just not going to be an overt battle. And I mean, I, you know, I, I think that makes sense. I don't know if it's anything too dramatic. I, I, I think obviously there's a little bit of optimism this week on the back of it. But equally, she spoke at a, at a business leader's uh, dinner um, after his summit with, with Biden. And, you know, I, the, the feedback coming out of that was interesting that there was no real, there was a lot of, it was described as a lot of propaganda, but no real positive talk about, you know, opening up barriers around trade or investment or anything like that. Obviously, U.S. business leaders would love if U.S.-Chinese relations thawed and and, and and grew because the likes of Apple, BlackRock, all of these huge firms have a massive uh, exposures to China and, and their, their whole processes 
are massively embedded in the Chinese economy, at least in relation to Apple. So obviously you would hope you would expect the business leaders to to be sympathetic to China and and, and upbeat, but you know it doesn't seem to be a whole lot of substance. So yeah, it wouldn't be surprising if 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 we see the the shifting uh, sand move uh, back towards greater conflict at some point in the future. But for now, things are looking a bit rosier. Yeah, and no, I think that's a great summary. Uh, what he also says, which I think is also kind of interesting, is of course that that even at times when two, say, superpowers in this case realize that they're better off working together than fighting each other, they still might end up fighting each other because they are worried that one will beat the other if uh, if if they wait too long. I, I, what I find interesting about this, um, well, there's two things. Obviously, I'm a little bit skeptical uh, about what people say because it's you know action speaks louder than words. I think, and there hasn't been many, hasn't been a lot of action that kind of confirms these uh, new, uh, you know, this new love affair between um, Biden and Xi. And but I, it's also the economic side of things where what 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 Dalio actually is saying is that you should spend your time to really build on your strength and get your house in order. But if I look economically, I don't know much about Chinese economics, but from what I can read, it's not in great shape. I know a little bit more about US economics and that for sure doesn't look like it's in great shape. So, you know, it is an interesting time and 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 who knows. But you're right, for this week, probably a little bit of a of cooling off the uh, tension between the countries. Um, other things cooled off, because I think you're going to talk about a few other macro th- uh, things that you found, um, such as the savings rate, for example. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on, um, we normally to spend a few minutes talking about kind of the big picture macro view, but rather than going into all of that and what we've seen in the data recently, there was just kind of uh, two or three data points slash observations that I thought were interesting recently that, that are kind of important not so much in the day-to-day, week-to-week, but it are important in, in the big picture. First one is if the, the recent release of the U.S. Uh, um, consumption and income data, which includes the savings rate. And uh, it showed that the U.S. savings rate was down to 3.4%, which is low. It was down as low as 2.7% in 2022, so it's last year. But to put that in context, like on average since 1990, the savings rate is about 6% in the U.S., so the U.S. savings rate is generally low. In Europe, the savings rates are all above 10%. So U.S. historically has low levels, but it is unusually low at the moment. And we had we have seen this in the past. You know, if you go back to kind of 2005, 6, 7, it was averaging around a similarly low kind of 2 to 3% level. But at the time, people worried about, is this sustainable? So again, it does raise the question is, you know, are U.S. consumers spending too much? Why is that the case? So it could be linked to the excess. So they have a stock of excess savings that they built up during the pandemic, and that allows them to spend more out of their current income. So that's what the savings rate captures than than they have done historically. Um, it could be, you know, it could be related to to, um, to demographics and, and, and retirees, um, or it could be just a, a temporary thing that people got used to spending a lot of cash in the, in the pandemic and now have continued, you know, as we came out of the pandemic and have continued it and are r- running up uh, credit card debt, et cetera. So um, it's, a, it's a warning sign, I think, but it's not something that you'll say is going to impact this week or next week. As I say, if you look at the experience back between 2005 and seven, the, the savings rate did stay low for a prolonged time, but then eventually snapped back. So I think it is quite something to monitor is like, is this sustainable? Because if you think about it, you know, if the savings rate went back from 3% to 6%, that's 3% of GDP. That would be quite a big hit to the economy. And, and you, you almost certainly would see, uh, obviously it wouldn't happen immediately, but if it happened over time, you'd probably see a recession as part of that pro- pro- process. So that's kind of a something on, on, on the negative side to be a little bit concerned about. On the plus side, yeah, we had productivity numbers uh, recently. And productivity numbers are really important for the long-term uh, outlook for, for the economy, but tend not to get that much uh, attention in the short term because the numbers are very volatile. And the third quarter uh, non-firm productivity was up at a 4.7% annual rate in the US. Very strong numbers, the fastest pace since since the pandemic, and those numbers were, were inflated because of what went on in the pandemic. If you look at the long-term trend in, pand- in, in productivity, it's, it's, quite, it's been very poor in the last decade. Actually, if you look at the 10 years to 2020, productivity in the US just grew at 1.1%, which was very low, low by historic standards. 
Whereas if you look at the 10 years between 1995 and 2005, so that was the era, you know, the productivity boom, Greenspan, the new paradigm, all of that. Productivity grew by 3.1%. So a two percentage point differential is, is enormous because long-term economic growth is basically driven by growth in the labor force and productivity. So if if your productivity has grown at 3%, your labor force might be growing at 1%. So that's why people thought long-term growth could be maybe at 4%, you know, back around 2000. Whereas now people think, uh, and economists think, long-term growth is like 15 to 2%. So um, why do I mention this? Well, there is some optimism that things are turning. As I said, the most recent number was stronger. Um, there is a sense that maybe what happened during the pandemic with hiring and, and firing, uh, companies were hoarding labor for a while. So they had more people on the books maybe than they needed because they were worried about being able to get more labor. And that meant that the output per per uh, for, for the amount of labor that they had is falling. So productivity uh, declined for that reason. And maybe working from home and all of those disruptions impacted productivity. So there are reasons to think that might unwind. And then obviously, the big hope for productivity is around AI and automation and robotics and all of that. So if we did see a boost from productivity, um, so basically if this recent trend that we're seeing of better numbers, if that continued, that would actually be very positive. Why? Because higher productivity would mean higher economic growth. It means wage growth can be higher without fueling inflation. Um, and it would mean debt would be more sustainable because, you know, everybody's looking at the debt situation and they look at the interest rate. But it's all about the interest rate in the context of, of the economic growth rate. It's basically the difference between rates R minus G. It's what economists talk about. So, so I think some good news there. I don't know if the market is partially responding to that. I mean, one productivity number, it, they're so volatile, it wouldn't make sense to do so. But certainly, it is something I would say worth monitoring going forward on a kind of um, over the next number of years, next number of quarters for sure. Because if productivity was to pick up, that could be part of a, of of the story around um, a better, you know, m maybe a more opti uh, optimistic outlook. And that takes me to the kind of the final observation. Um, the Economist art, uh, the Economist magazine had an article out not this week, last week I think it was. Can't remember the, the title, but it was basically saying that the expansion can't last, which is kind of talking about what I'm saying around the savings rate and saying, okay, productivity has been low, but slightly picked up, but but too early to draw any conclusions. You know, we've had monetary tightening, fiscal policy can't continue at the same rate. All of the things that I would have said myself, to be honest, but when I read it in The Economist, it makes me worried. Why? Because uh, magazines like The Economist are great for, for kind of general uh, information and insight on the economy, but tend to be terrible uh, kind of forecasters of markets and economy. So there are a number of people in the, the Twitter world who kind of highlighted the the, the, the kind of the the uh, the poor record, you know, the, of these uh, publications. That you know, some of the classics are the death of equities from Business Week in 1979, just before you know a massive bull run. Or the Economist had a piece drowning in oil in 1999 when oil prices were at the lows. Even last year, they had a piece of trouble with sticky inflation, and obviously inflation has come down. So when I read that from The Economist, you, you do start to worry that maybe we're too pessimistic. I mean, I would have been in the camp of saying, you know, you have to be concerned about that the, the fiscal policy won't be as stimulative next year, and we haven't seen the full impact of monetary tightening. But uh, yeah, maybe that's that's too much of a, of a consensus view. Um, on the plus side, one final piece within all of this, Goldman Sachs that have their macro outlook out and they are more upbeat looking into 2024 their view is basically the hard part is done the outlook is rosy um so that's an uh, interesting as well and uh, and i actually went back and i had saved last year's version uh, of goldman's because i was thinking well how good have they been and they were actually pretty good last year to give them credit they were more upbeat on the outlook than everybody else so maybe something to to to, to, to keep in mind so yeah i mean personally still cautious but but it does make me uh pause for, for for thought when I see uh, when I see it in the, in the mainstream uh, media like like the Economist magazine and another chart that I came across uh, on on in on, in the fintwit space um, that uh, gives a little bit of a pause for for thought um, and also is uh, to do with uh, I, I would say optimism I guess you could say because I found this chart from uh, Bank of America uh, they did a survey of fund managers 
and found that they are the most overweight in bonds since March of 2009. Um, and then they go into say, well, you know, probably shouldn't read too much into it. Uh, and to cut a long story short, uh, March 2009 wasn't a great time to be bullish bonds because they actually sold off quite sharply uh, after that. So not saying that this will happen again, but uh, yeah, investors are maybe turning bullish on bonds um, and and perhaps there is still a little bit more room to the downside uh, before it's, it all turns, which of course it will at some point. All right, Alan, enough of all this global macro mumbo jumbo. People are here to talk about hardcore, systematic CTA trend stuff. Um, and you found some great articles and papers that we need to uh, dive into. The first one is from our friends in over in Paris, CFM. Um, they had a paper. And so I will pass it over to you. And it actually, I think it is some, it's a point that I, I seem to remember uh, Philip brought up in our conversation yeah. uh, when we did it. Okay, all right. No, that's cool. right. I mean, it's it, it's actually not a recent paper. It's back in 2017, but um, the context it came up in a discussion I've been having with a with a with a client recently around you know trend and non-trend and be- the benefit of non-trend strategies. And when we interviewed Philip uh, Seeger from CFM in part of the t- the the, the subchain series, he made the point that they had done a study uh, saying you know if you look at the subchain CTA index. Trend following explains all of their returns, and non-trend basically had contributed nothing. So, so I wanted to kind of go back and say, well, because because I've heard that now being kind of repeated uh, by by other uh, managers and people maybe using that to, uh, in certain ways. So I wanted to get a better sense on exactly what they said, and is that is that is that a reasonable um, thing to take away from their study? So they they had uh, this was done in 2017, around a time when there was a lot of focus on CTA saying. They're all the same. It's all commoditized. So it's kind of in that period, and that was kind of the context. So they 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 they, they, they regressed a very simple uh, trend model on the returns of the subchain CG index. They looked at two months, six months, and twelve month type timeframes using exponential moving average model, uh, and they found that the six month model was that was the best fit. Um, uh, and they found that that this uh, this was able to generate a zero point nine sharp. Uh, versus the, the sharp of the subchain CTA of 0.4. Now, their replicator obviously didn't include any trading costs or fees. And they were able to say, well, if you take out that, take out 4%, which I, well, I'm not sure if that's supposed to be uh, re- reflective of all of that, that they were able to match uh, the performance of the subchain CTA index purely based on this trend model. So, I mean, just to quote a couple of bits, they said the aggregate of the CTA industry is well described by trend following. Fair enough. And the performance of the remaining unexplained return stream is flat. So that was their takeaway. Therefore, CTAs only offer exposure to trend following, with the contribution from non-trend being zero. Uh, obviously, some firms can outperform and others will underperform, but in aggregate, that's what they were saying. So that made me think, you know, based on my own experience uh, allocating to managers, seeing the performance data, I would say that, 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 that that's not my experience. So I, I would certainly have seen certainly instances of non-trend strategies being additive in for individual CTAs and in the aggregate. And I went back and looked at the, even if you look at the performance of the subgen CTA index versus the subgen trend index, historically the subgen CTA index has a higher sharp ratio. It's, it's a lower vol index. But if you levered it up to the same in uh, vol of the uh, subgen trend, you do get a higher return. So that is suggesting that non-trend is contributing something to, 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 to the overall performance. I think there are methodological issues here that you have to keep in mind, that if you look at something like the SOCGEN CTA index, it's uh, 20 managers, they're all equally weighted. So it's basically you know 5% uh, dollar allocation to all 20. So if you have a trend-following manager that's, say, a 20-vol manager, and if you had a macro manager say at five vol um, and five might be low but just for just to highlight the point the risk contribution from the trend is going to be four four times uh, the macro manager so in general i would say trend followers run at higher vol than than what i see from say quant macro or non-trend managers so it's not necessarily representative in that sense it's an index that is more heavily weighted to trend following anyway so to say that trend following 
that you get a lot of trend following from CTAs. That's hardly uh, news, you know, that we, we, we all know that. Uh, I suppose the debatable point is whether the non-trend part adds something or not. I would say it has, it does. You can, you can see that in, 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 in the performance of managers. I mean, the, the curious thing when you think about it is, uh, and, and then Philip um, talked about this, like CFM uh, run about 9 billion, 8 billion of it is in non-trend strategies anyway. So they're not saying that non-trend strategies don't work. They're just saying, they seem to be saying in the paper, CTAs are not particularly good at doing it. Uh, that, that's my takeaway. Um, I mean, the, the, the paper can be used, as I say, in different ways. And it's kind of interesting. Some managers have taken that observation and saying, oh, you know, all you get from CTAs is trend and non-trend doesn't work. Others have taken it maybe and used it as support for replication. You know, if you say, if you can do the CTA and take out the fees, you can do even better. So um, that's another way you could take uh, take that I I information and, and use it slightly differently. Yeah, so, and, and, and then the final way was, I, I, back at the time, I suppose a lot of people used it to say, hey, look, a six-month um, exponential moving average can fully replicate the, the stock chain CTA, so why would you pay for, for more sophisticated trends? So I think it's interesting how one piece of research, which may have some methodological met questions, can still be used uh, because it generates a, a kind of a, a sticker headline and then still used by different managers to, uh, to, to support different positions. But as I say, my perspective on it was interesting study, but this didn't necessarily prove the point that they were making and uh, certainly didn't seem consistent with their own business, if you think about it, that, you know, obviously non-trend, and they've been very successful, we have to say. So so, so uh, it answered, if somebody asked me, does non are there opportunities in the non-trend space? Of course there are. Uh, but you have to be uh, you have to be skilled uh, at exploiting them. Yeah, that, there's quite a few uh, takeaways from my side when when I hear you talk about that. First of all, I think there's one thing that we um, uh, also have to mention, and that is some managers are that are referred to as as non-trend. Some of the managers we actually interviewed uh, in our series actually have a fair allocation of trend inside their program, even though they're classified. Uh, as say a short-term manager, but actually, you know, part of their risk budget goes to medium to long-term trend following. So that makes it even more difficult to actually uh, understand completely what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're a trend follower, you probably would need to be able to show that you've outperformed the trend following index uh, to show that you, uh, you know, add value. Uh, otherwise, of course, you could make the argument, well, why, why not just buy the index? Which brings up one thing, that actually, Alan, I don't know if you, I thought I heard uh, a while back that there was um, talks about uh, the index becoming investable. Have you come across that? No, I, I haven't. Not for the stock chain. Uh, the one that was being talked about was the HFRI um, hedge fund index. I think uh, there was talk that... Um, I think there were Aberdeen Asset Management were generating, developing a product. I think, I think that is live. I, yeah, think, I think that, that is yeah, a live yeah, product. Um, that invests kind of across the hedge fund universe, um, but not for the subchain uh, trend right. or subchain. No, yeah. no, that, yeah. that's fair enough. It's only because I noticed that they've changed their performance, the way you get the performance numbers for the index. It's become much better now, actually, because now you get the monthly returns instead of just the daily returns, and you have to figure out what the month turned out. When you download it from their website, and um, and it talks about a NAV, so I'm thinking, well, maybe they're toying with a real live uh, version of this. Anyway, that's for a different discussion. I'm sure our friends over at SG will tell us uh, if there's something we need to uh, concern ourselves about. Um, yeah, but anyways, I mean, of course, a big uh, obsession uh, from the uh, allocator world. Uh, is justifying their business by saying, well, you can't just buy a trend follower, you need to add a few extra things. And of course, for some uh, firms out there, that has worked very well. So I'm sure that is true. Um, but I would also buy into the argument saying, well, you know, if you have the patience and you, and I don't know if that was the question also in the paper, but I don't know if these fully diversified or more, more diversified products actually do better they can maybe create a, a smoother return path, so to speak, smoother return stream. But do they do better than than uh, a few really good long term, well established trend followers uh, put together? I don't know. I haven't done the. Yeah. Well, the math. I, I see. I think one of the challenges with this is 
I mean, when you, once you move out of trend following into non-trend, there's a huge range of strategies. Um, like, obviously, you have futures-based strategies, you have within equities, you've got discretionary, uh, systematic. And the benefit of we have a trend following is we have these indices that show actual live performance going back at least a couple of decades with, with daily data, back to the 1980s, you know, with the Berkeley Hedge, uh, the Berkeley CTA index, and back to 1990 with the P-Top 50. So it's very, we can show with certainly that a, a, a group, like w w w with a strategy that, okay, there's different ways of doing trend, but but that, that broad approach is proven over that period of time. Whereas when you get into the non-trend, it, it becomes more manager specific. It's harder to create these indices. So I think it's harder to, to prove that it, it works. You're probably, it, it, maybe it's more, the case said that you know it probably is a case yeah, that manager selection is more important in that space because you know you can't say everybody is doing things slightly differently but of course i mean i mean to say that trend is the only thing that is valid and uh, can can generate returns over the long term in the in the futures trading or diversified macro area i mean no i mean i, I don't think that's that you could stand that over that would be that. a little I mean, bit of a stretch well yeah it's uh. a bit of a stretch i mean look at the many <laughs> successful firms who are doing things they are doing CFM, for example, they do trend, but they do other things as well. So I, 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 that's what was my point. I think this study has been somewhat hijacked in how it's been used uh, in some instances. And and kind of that actually brings up one other thing that uh, just hearing you talking about this, and that is if I look at the evolution of our industry compared to when I started out um, some 30 plus years ago, I think the big change is that a lot of the people who were really were, were our peers uh, back then have morphed into these, I wouldn't call them multi-strat firms because that's a different strategy, right? Yeah. But it's firms that offer multiple strategies. Yes, uh, yeah. Uh, and, and so there really aren't that many pure, single-focused trend followers out there uh, left in this industry. And that I find interesting, frankly. But, you know... No, I'd agree with that. No, for yeah. sure. There are very few... Yeah, there are a handful, I would say, of managers who just focus on trend following at the exclusion of everything else. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, we're going to jump back a little bit later uh, in, a, in a few minutes into uh, another paper from uh, some of our CTA friends. But before that, I think we're going to jump into a paper from uh, a, a well-known firm called JP Morgan um, because you came across uh, their long-term capital markets paper and what their... I guess advising their clients um, to do, and I think the big, the big sort of what I took away from it. I'd love for you to expand is it, and that is, and and it kind of goes back to some of the things we've talked about before, and that is, what are we going to do with this sixty forty portfolio? Is it is it still valid, or has things changed? What what are what did you take away from this paper? No, that's exactly it, and I mean the, the reason I bring it up is twofold. I mean it's interesting to to have a sense of what people are thinking in terms of expectations for returns, rent, equities, and bonds, and all of that. But but a big part of this paper is talking about the new worlds that we live in and diversification and enhancing the 60-40. And obviously, trend is is relevant. Um, so just in terms of their kind of capital market assumptions in the first place, I mean, they're looking at US equities delivering 7% over the long term. European equities more optimistic, 9.3%. They see dollar cash averaging 2.9% over time uh, and um, uh, they see 10-year bonds generating returns of 4.6%. So a 60-40 portfolio in dollars, and this is using global equities and U.S. bonds, uh, therefore forecasting 7%, a U.S.-focused 60-40, uh, so U.S. equities and U.S. bonds would be six, about 6%. So it's okay but actually, that number would be would have been closer to ten percent in the ten years to um, the end of twenty nineteen. So in that decade, so um, you know, sixty forty looks okay, but not fantastic. And they do make the very important point that we have been emphasizing that you know bonds can still be a diversifier to a growth shock, but not necessarily to all shocks. You know, particularly what we saw last year, which was more of an, an inflation shock, and that's because a recognition that the correlation between bonds and equities is going to be less stable going forward. So I think that was all made sense and, you know, agreed with all that. Um, we, we, when they followed on from that, I mean, they, they do give some forecasts on the alternative space. And 
I mean, they mentioned, you know, uh, return expectations for global macro of 3.6% down from 4.1% last year, which surprised me a little bit because I'm, you know, obviously with a higher interest rate, you would expect global macro funds, which tend to hold a decent amount of cash like CTAs, you would expect the, the outlook to be looking better. But but anyway, uh, that was just one uh, bugbear. Uh, they, they, as you go through the reports, they have a lot of uh, separate articles and then they get, get to one where um, they're talking about how to develop a smarter portfolio to mitigate shocks in a less predictable world. And uh, so this is basically how to make your 60-40 portfolio more robust. And they talk about a number of different sources of diversification. The first one they call risk premia, and they actually include trend following within risk premia, which I know will uh, annoy some some of us and some of our our listeners. You know, is is I, I mean, I guess the idea is a trend picks up on a, on a behavioral source a source of risk premia. Um, but that, so good to see that actually trend following is in there because very often with these reports, there's actually no mention of things like trend following. So I was encouraged to see that they do also include things like active management, and they reference global tactical asset allocation, so kind of shifting, um, which is interesting because if you think about it, you know, trend following is a form of global tactical asset allocation, which we're going to talk about with the quantitative paper. They also include FX as, as a source of return. So, um, you know, uh, obviously a lot of uh, these types of investors would might use currency overlay, but they're saying, don't forget, you could take active FX risk. But again, you can do that with specialist FX managers or get it via a, a diversified manager like, like a CTA. And then they say, you know, other sources of diversification from thematic exposure. So this is fair enough. I mean, in, in terms of maybe having exposure to energy would help you in a year like last year. Um, and then and then separately, they have alternatives, which include uh, hedge funds and, and, and alternative credit and real estate. So interesting CTAs not included in that side, but but included in the, in the, in the risk premium side. Um, so I think all of that I, I thought was very encouraging in terms of this narrative around the need for more robust portfolios and, and, and encouraging from the perspective of CJs and, and trend following being, being referenced within that. They then did, did outline kind of a, a new enhanced portfolio, but actually when you looked at it, it didn't look that different to, to, to what you would typically see, you know, bonds 36%. With a, with a heavy weighting to investment grade corporates, um, equities were about forty one percent, real assets ten percent, private seven percent. You know, hedge funds were only one percent. The numbers didn't add up to to hundred percent. So I'm not sure if so if if they missed something or, or not. But still, there was no mention of a, like a, a reasonable size allocation to to to, to CTAs or, or managed futures. Now this enhanced portfolio did outperform the typical sixty forty. And then they did redo it using a fully liquid version, so taking out some of the real assets, uh, but they didn't kind of give give the, the breakdown for, 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 for that, and then that also did, did better. So overall, I would say um, philosophically, you know, good, and, and, and they, they were on a kind of, uh, I like the way they were thinking in terms of describing the world, the more volatile macro um, uh, backdrop, the less stable correlations between bonds and equities, we're probably going to be in in a higher return world uh, in terms of interest rates, etc. And they are identifying some interesting strategies there in terms of FX trend following, um, etc. But still, um, I mean, they said they also mentioned within there that you know important not just to do mean variance optimization, but more robust optimizations using simulations, Monte Carlo simulations. So I'm amazed having not having done those Monte Carlo simulations that. Uh, managed futures and trend following didn't pop up at a, at a, at a higher allocation. So, um, as I say, yeah, interesting, but um, still looks very much uh, undiversified to to my eye when I looked at it. Particularly if you look at it from the perspective of, you know, they had say ten percent in treasuries, twenty percent in, in investment grade bonds, three percent in high yield, three percent emerging market debt. You know, as we've seen before, things like investment grade bonds and credits are not. They're not great, you know. They they have a, a an element of fixed income and then an element of equity exposure. So you're getting a hybrid of those two exposures. You're not really diversifying either bonds or equities that much with with things like credit or emerging market bonds. And similarly with real assets, you know, it, they are heavily related to the economic cycle. So if you have an economic downturn, they won't do that well. So there's a whole sleeve of 
tactical trading strategies that gives a very different return profile that they're not really aggressively allocating to. So positive in one sense, but a bit frustrating in another sense was my takeaway. Well, just like we talked about with Xi and Biden, I mean, often uh, action speaks louder than words. So, I mean, you can talk about all these things, but if you still end up with a 1% allocation, um, yeah, it's probably not going to make a big difference. One thing that I'm also a little bit surprised about when you see these and people end up with something that looks very similar to the 60-40 is just this the fact that they kind of ignore that maybe correlations between stocks and bonds can actually remain uh, positive now that we have inflation, because that's at least what the historical data shows, that once you have 3% or above uh, inflation, uh, most of the time these two asset classes are positively correlated. So you get no benefit, diversification benefit in that sense. So it's interesting um, that they ignore this. But um, anyways, um, that's their view. Let's uh, let's jump to another view, which is from uh, Quantica. And that actually goes to your uh, to what you mentioned, you know, trend versus uh, global tactical asset allocation. That's right, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I thought this was a very interesting paper. Um, so it's called Trend Following Through the Prism of Tactical Asset Allocation. And it's very much a a niche follow-up to what we've been talking about because they take the perspective of a long-only investor, um, a typical, I suppose, uh, it could be a wealth manager, asset allocator, and say if you were, say if you had these uh, 16 ETFs that they identify across a different asset class, for example, treasuries, um, investment-grade bonds, high-yield bonds, emerging market debt, municipals, and then uh, alongside equities, real estate, commodities, um, and gold. And uh, if you were to go with, um, you know, a typical um, kind of risk a- asset allocation that, that you would see. So, 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 the, so what they're trying to do here is is they say, okay, let's take a, a kind of a typical asset allocation, um, that kind of a strategic asset allocation where an investor would just kind of pick their strategic asset allocation and rebalance monthly. And then let's look at that and say, well, Say if we were to apply trend following to that, not uh, trend following in the sense of n- not going short and not using any leverage, just modulating the exposure to those 16 ETFs based on the strength of the trend in those markets. So kind of, you might call it long only trend following. And does that create value? Um, and what they found that it does. So if, if you applied uh, their kind of standard trend following model to those 16 markets, and they they, they uh, figure out how to equate the risk to, to a similar level. Um, and the average notional exposures were similar, although not exactly, because uh, obviously there's going to be two periods where if the trend's down, you're going to go into cash and you're going to have no exposure, little exposure to, to these assets. Interesting, what I found was the trend following on the ETFs did better, slightly better. Um, not I think it was about 5% versus 4.8%. But at a much lower volatility, so but seven seven and a half percent versus eleven percent. So obviously, why is that? Because obviously, when equities go into a serious downtrend, you go into cash, and uh, you might have upgraded your fixed income to an extent, but you're not losing leverage, so you wouldn't go massively overweight, um, and and you would benefit in those types of situations. So you get you get them you get better performance, lower vol, and more consistent volatility as well than just a passive um, strategic asset allocation. Uh, approach. So the second thing that, that they did then was to say, well, okay, that's fine, but what about if we eliminated um, the constraint around leverage? So if you think about it, this type of investor has kind of three constraints: you know, no, 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 no leverage, uh, no short positions, uh, and only trading those markets. So, so what they do is then gradually uh, relax each of those restraints. So by kind of taking away the the, the leveraging uh, constraint you're kind of moving more into like a risk parity type of model. So if you think about what's risk parity, it's saying, yeah, you, there's a return from from bonds and equities and other sources, commodities as well. But in most portfolios, they're not sized properly because the volatility is greater in equity. So if you adjust for for, 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 for the leverage, um, you can add value from that. And what the Fed is, um, yeah, that did add, add value as well. Um, the third thing that then is they added short positions. Now, actually, when they did this within the 16 ETF portfolio, the performance didn't improve that much, or it was about the same, but it, it had better risk. Uh, it, it, it was a more robust portfolio in terms of 
fair market. So they have more consistent uh, r- return profile. And then the final thing they said was, well, okay, let's just not do the 10 following on the 16 ETFs, but let's broaden it out and allow the leverage, uh, allow the uh, short positions, but doing it on whatever it is, 100 markets or um, you know, a typical kind of trend following universe. And then you do see the, you know, the, the returns jump up again by quite, quite a lot as well. And I thought that was interesting. So if you think, it, it, I think it's an, an interesting and, and, a, and a valuable paper. People think about CTAs and trend following, and it's all about the signal, but it's, it's not just about the signal. So the, the value, the benefit of it in a portfolio is coming from the signal. So yes, there is momentum in markets. If you modulate your position based on that, you can add value. But also, it's about risk sizing and and, and uh, sizing um, your exposures appropriately. Uh, okay, it's related to volatility. People might have ha- how you measure vol or how you measure risk, but having some measure of risk and equalizing for that does add value. And then diversification and getting access to different return drivers had a big contribution. And if you think about it, it comes back to my point. Like in their 16 ETF portfolio, it's all... Treasuries, you know, uh, municipal bonds, corporates, merging market debt, real estate, commodities. As I say, you, you've kind of got two things. You've kind of got assets that do well when growth is strong or assets that do well when growth is poor, you know. But you've kind of got two dimensions there. If you start adding in commodities, currencies, short-term interest rates, you're getting much more idiosyncratic return profiles. And that's where you're getting a lot of the benefit from 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 trend following. You see the big jump up in the uh, in the uh, in, in in the overall return. So I thought it was a very good way of kind of decomposing the benefit of trend following into three constituent parts: that of the signal, the risk sizing, and the diversification from 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 a lot of markets. And um, I think it's interesting. Maybe it's a good way. It might be a helpful way of showing to kind of more traditional asset allocators to benefit. And uh, and obviously, they don't have to run trend following or they don't have to even try and do that on, on their multi-asset portfolio. But uh, if you if you add a trend following fund to a 60-40 portfolio, you're achieving the same thing if you think about it. So if you, you, know, if you start with a 60-40 passive portfolio, add a trend following allocation. The trend following manager is going to be trading bonds and equities as well but also commodities and currencies, and it's going to be risk sizing, and it's going to be long short. So what what have you got now? You've now got a dynamic multi-asset fund, you know, that goes much, you know, obviously the, where the overall exposures shift around a lot more, and you've got more, you're, you're more diversified. So you don't actually have to go and run trend following. All you have to do is add that into your exposure, your, your existing portfolio, and you get that more dynamism. So I think that's the important point um, to think about um, when kind of positioning, I, I guess, uh, these uh, to, to to more traditional uh, allocators. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, uh, thanks for this um, sort of a walkthrough. Um, and uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, I, I like all their um, you know quarterly insight papers. Uh, they do a great job, and I think you're absolutely right. This is a a fun, subtle way of actually uh, highlighting the benefits. Um, but speaking in a in a language that maybe a lot of these traditional investors uh, might relate to. Now, the last point we will uh, just talk about before we wrap up today is something where we probably both felt that this is most likely above uh, our pay grade. And then I said to you, well, that hasn't stopped us before. So um, you came across this interesting article from the FT, um, could be from this morning or yesterday, and... You know, we're at an interesting point in time, uh, not saying that there's going to be a crisis of some sort. We've had plenty of uh, of that uh, recently. But there are things happening outside our world, but in the alternative investments world, where you sometimes think, well, it's a little bit interesting. Uh, you know, we've had private equity having kind of difficulties offloading some of their uh, inventory and then they're being sold to other funds that they create and we all think that's a little bit weird um, and then you came across this one um, the headline was Blackstone borrows to boost lending power of 52 billion dollar credit fund 
And what it's about, it says Blackstone is planning to borrow hundreds of millions of dollars to give its flagship private credit fund added investment power as the asset manager taps a new source of leverage that it and rivals aim to increasingly exploit in the years to come. The private equity behemoth is in the final stages of raising just under $400 million through a so-called collateralized loan obligation secured by the very loans held by its $52 billion Blackstone private credit fund known as BCRED, according to documents obtained by the Financial Times. Now, this is way above my uh, pay grade, Alan, um, but I could read the chart that is in the article where it shows that Bank of America expects private credit CLO insurance to jump in 2024 to a higher level than what we've seen in the last 10 years, maybe even a record level. What did you take away from this? Yeah, no, it was funny. Uh, it, I came across it in the uh, FT's uh, unhedged uh, morning newsletter, and uh, they said <clears throat> right at the end of the newsletter, they said our head uh, hurt uh, from trying to make sense of this article, so I could feel feel their pain after I read it. And um, yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting that I mean, basically, they're issuing CLOs uh, to get more funding for 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 for, for their uh, private credit fund. Now, the, in, the interesting thing about these product credit funds that I thought about in the first place is um, they actually have credit lines to the banks, um, the, uh, which which it seems a bit unusual because the whole point about these funds, private credit growing in the first place, was that they were going to displace the bank lending. But actually, they had been borrowing from banks to issue their own uh, loans. But it seems like banks are stepping back a bit in terms of their lending to some of these funds. So now they're looking to for alternative sources of um, of leverage and, and returns. So now they're issuing CLOs. So it's kind of funny then, well, which where would you invest in? Would you invest in the CLO or would you invest in big credit itself, the, the BlackRock credit? And I guess with the CLOs, you can pick exactly which tranche you want, whether you want the highest tranche in terms of credit rating or not. So so maybe there is some reason uh, to, to there. Um, but uh, and 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 then Blackstone are holding the sort of the B cred fund is going to hold the equity of the CLO. I didn't realize there is equity, but I looked it up. Then the CLOs all have different tranches, and the lowest tranche is called the equity tranche. So I guess it it's the bit that that is if everything everybody else gets paid out. Yeah, if there's anything left, that you hold it. So so they said this is kind of to avoid any conflict. But I I mean you know at a simple level when we hear about CLOs and credit and uh, Big amounts, we all get worried. So we're, we're not, we're not probably not equipped to, to to critique it in any sophisticated way. But but it does uh, seem like more leverage being being thrown on the space. And I suppose the thing that I find interesting is everybody's saying that well now this kind of private credit is good because it means it's not systemic. You know, it's, it's not going to bring down the banks if if you get a problem with some of these loans. But presumably these. Big private credit funds, if 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 they run into problems, particularly if they run into problems under CLOs, would that mean they'd have to start pulling back under lending? So you might still get those systemic impacts that that we thought we wouldn't see. So that was the only thought I had. Uh, certainly worth monitoring, and I'd say we'll probably hear more about this going forward, and hopefully we'll have more informed comments to make about them next time we read about them. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It's probably best to uh, leave it uh, leave it there. Um, I guess my uninformed uh, reaction was that when you hear about, oh, I'm going to add extra leverage because there are some great opportunities, it sounds like you're already underwater in some of your positions and now you just want to find a way to uh, to buy more, doubling down here. But I could be completely wrong, of course, and this could be the greatest thing since um, sliced bread, uh, for all I know. Anyways, this was, uh, this was fun, Alan. Thank you so much for... Uh, for your thorough uh, groundwork for uh, for our conversation today. If you like these conversations and uh, you want to help us grow the show, uh, please go and leave a rating and review. Um, we, uh, we need them coming in on a continuous basis because that's what the algos like to see. If you don't know how to do it, you can actually go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash review and there's a little guide as to how you can... <laughs> Uh, help us uh, with that. Of course, if you have any questions uh, for upcoming episodes, uh, you can send it to info at toptradersonplug.com and we'll do our best to address 
those. Next week, I'm joined by Mark. Uh, he's back. And so if you have some questions to uh, uh, for him to tackle, uh, by all means, uh, email them over and um, we'll do our very best to uh, to give you an informed uh, answer on that. From Alan and me, thank you ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.